chapter four part two of guide to the study of the christian religion this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. guide to the study of the christian religion edited by gerald burney smith chapter four part two the books of the new testament and their interpretation one the general nature of the interpretative process a the meaning of the word the word interpretation primarily denotes the act of one who stands between two others to communicate the thought of one to the other in usage it denotes most commonly the process of discovering the thought of another from its expression with or without communication of the thought thus discovered to a third person interpretation in this sense is the exact correlate of expression and the two processes enter into every communication of thought from mind to mind the thinker converts his thought by expression so to speak into a visible or audible symbol and the receiving mind converts the symbol into thought again by the process of interpretation more exactly stated the thinker creates or utters a visible or audible symbol of what he has in his mind and the interpreter hearing or seeing the symbol and knowing its conventional value thinks the thought for which the symbol stands the field of interpretation in this sense of the word is a very wide one the lawyer the student of literature the historian indeed every reader of what is written or printed and every listener to the speech of his fellow-men is an interpreter not only so but all who look at pictures or listen to music do so with the intent of repeating in their own experience that which the painter or composer thought or felt the fundamental principles of interpretation are moreover for all of these interpreters the same in all of them also the term interpretation is used either of the process by which one recovers for himself that which has been expressed in symbol or of the communication of what he has thus obtained to another b a definition of literary interpretation if we limit our thought for the moment to the interpretation of literature language written or spoken we may define interpretation as the process of representing to one's own mind or to the minds of others the whole of that state of mind of the author of which the language to be interpreted was the expression c some untenable methods of interpretation the acceptance of this definition which it must be remembered is based upon the premise that interpretation is the correlate and complement of expression leads to the rejection of certain methods of interpretation which have often been employed not by biblical interpreters only but especially by them one it excludes the allegorical method which conceives that the meaning of what is written is to be found not in the thought which the writer had in mind but in that which is suggested by treating statements of facts as allegories what is written allegorically is of course according to the principles above enunciated to be interpreted as allegory but what is here described as the allegorical method consists in treating unallegorical language as allegorical in defiance of the principle that interpretation is the reproduction of the thought of the author two it excludes the mystical method which assuming that one is able by some inner light to discover meanings independently of all rules and principles really abandons the search for the writer's thought and sets up the interpreter's thought in its place the element of thought in this theory of which it is important not to lose sight is that interpretation demands sympathy with the mind of the writer 
to be interpreted and that in particular the interpreter of religious writings must himself have a sympathetic understanding of the possibilities of religious experience three it excludes the dogmatic method which assumes that the results of the interpretation of a certain body of literature must conform to the dogmas of an accepted body of doctrine or system of thought this method takes on two forms the traditionalistic and the rationalistic in the former the interpreter finds in some traditional and accepted system of doctrine the standard and criterion of the results of interpretation in the latter he sets up such a standard in the system of thought arrived at by supposedly rational processes the impulse which gives rise to the use of this method in either of its forms is one that commands respect arising as it does out of the desire to coordinate all the results of one's thought into a consistent unity but it falls into the obvious but serious error of assuming that one's favorite author must have held the same views of truth as that at which the interpreter himself has arrived or which are laid down in his inherited and accepted creed d the grammatico-historical method the only method which is consistent with a proper conception of interpretation is the so-called grammatico-historical method which endeavors by the use of historical data and the methods of historical investigation to ascertain the thought which the writer or speaker had in mind when he wrote or spoke this method though demanding the diligent use of grammar and lexicon does not reduce interpretation to a mere matter of the use of these instruments but calls for the restoration of the whole thought world in which the writer or speaker to be interpreted lived and the most complete and systematic devotion of one's energy to the task of rediscovering his thought the question which it asks is what did the writer think when he wrote these words it entirely separates the criticism of the results of interpretation from the interpretative process itself it asks not what is true philosophically or theologically but what was that experience in the mind of the writer of which the language is the outward expression by its very nature it demands of the interpreter a knowledge of the thought environment in which the book to be interpreted was produced and of the usages of the language in which it is written and therefore calls for those studies preliminary to interpretation which are discussed in the paragraphs next following two the environment of early christianity no historic movement takes place as an isolated phenomenon but always has its antecedents and surroundings which condition its character and direction and no such movement can be understood without some knowledge of its historic setting every piece or body of literature is the product and expression of the life of a people or the experience of an individual and no literature can be interpreted adequately without some knowledge of the life in the midst of which it was produced a study of the actual processes of expression and interpretation in everyday life and the more intensive prosecution of the task of interpreting ancient literature have made it increasingly clear that no literature can be adequately interpreted with lexicon and grammar only to read the first epistle of paul to the thessalonians as an undated piece of literature or as a document written by a man of to-day to men of to-day is to touch only on the high spots of its meaning to read it as a part of an actual correspondence between people of the first century with the benefit of a knowledge of the life of that period is to look through an open window into an intensely interesting human situation to read the gospel of matthew ignorant of the questions which in the latter part of the first century were at issue between jews and christians 
and between Jewish and Gentile Christians, is not necessarily to fail to grasp the great central elements of the teaching of Jesus, but it is inevitably to miss the exact thought and purpose of the book, and seriously to misrepresent the writer's state of mind and his central contention. But to reproduce the life, especially the intellectual and religious life, of that far-away period is obviously a difficult task. It is to this task that some of the ablest scholars of the last and of the present generation have devoted themselves most diligently. Such writers as Schurer and Bousset have by their patient and thorough investigations put us in fuller possession of the thought and religious life of the Jewish people in the New Testament period than the men of the Christian church have ever been in any preceding age. And the investigations, which have long been in progress and are still far from complete, into the life and thinking of the people among whom Paul did his work, are gradually giving us a truer and deeper insight than we have ever before had, not only into the apostles' thought, but into the whole life of the early church, and the real character and significance of the early Christian movement. Eventually, these studies promise to enable us to read the literature of that period with some measure, at least, of that sympathetic understanding and quick intelligence with which it was read by most educated and many uneducated men of the first century. The full discussion of the subject belongs to another part of this volume, see chapter 5, but to omit all mention of it at this point would be to set the interpretative process itself in a false light. 3. The Discovery of the Occasion and Purpose of the Several Books the reproduction of the general situation in the midst of which the New Testament books were produced is, as we have seen, invaluable and indispensable to the student of those books. But it falls short of preparing him for the full understanding of them. For the intelligent reading of these books, that is, for their interpretation, it is requisite that one restore as fully as possible the precise occasion and set of circumstances out of which the book arose. A letter picked up on the street may easily be an absolute enigma when first read, but by the identification of its writer and the discovery of its occasion and purpose may become so full of meaning as to be the basis of a life-and-death decision by a court. So a letter of Paul's, written to a group of Christians in the first century, read without knowledge of the circumstances under which it was written, may seem like a dull essay on eschatology, or a dry treatise on election and justification. But if it is possible for us to reproduce the situation which gave rise to it, out of which it sprung, and in which it played a part, it may become to us an intensely interesting and luminous reflection of the life of the church in the days of the apostles. Early Christian Writings The religious movement which began with the preaching of Jesus in Galilee very soon found expression in writing. This was more true of Christianity than of any contemporary religious movement of which we know. The literature, if we may call it by that name, at first consisted of personal letters called forth by a special situation and designed to meet an immediate need and nothing more. More conscious literary works presently arose, gospels, prophecies, histories, sermons, and books were written and put in circulation. These books soon fell into groups, and some of these groups were at length gathered up into the collection known to us as the New Testament. But in order to understand them, we must take them up individually, and inquire what called them forth, who wrote them, why and for whom they were written. This is the first step toward the real understanding of the contents of every such ancient work. 
possible groupings of them. The books of the New Testament may be conveniently grouped about four important historical points. The Gentile mission, which gave rise to the letters of Paul, and afterward formed the subject of the Acts of the Apostles. The fall of Jerusalem, about which the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke gather. The persecution of Domitian, which called forth the Revelation, first peter and the epistle to the hebrews and finally the rise of the docetic and gnostic sects which constitutes the background of the gospel of john and the minor epistles from another point of view the new testament books may be divided according to the literary types to which they belong some are personal letters some are epistles that is more formal discussions of a general theme put in epistolary form and published for a wide circle some are gospels a type of literature very near biography but closer still to the elijah and elisha cycles in the books of kings one the acts is a historical book one james is a sermon and one the revelation is the prophecy of a christian prophet the type of literature to which each book belongs is a matter of much importance in the study and understanding of it there is however a more practical division of the new testament writings it is suggested in part by literary and in part by historical considerations the letters of paul constitute one natural group and the early Gospels and Acts a second. The writings relating to Domitian's persecution make a third, and the Gospel and Epistles of John a fourth. There remain the other general epistles, James, Jude, and Second Peter. We may approach these groups in this order. The Letters of Paul the ancients who compiled our New Testament ascribed fourteen letters to Paul. The historical student of the New Testament has to satisfy himself as to whether all or any of these are indeed from his hand, for in the interpretation of them much depends upon a sound view of their authorship. In the effort to arrive at the facts in such a study, we have two kinds of materials to build upon the testimony of each letter as to itself, and the statements of ancient writers about it. Neither of these may be neglected. It is indispensable that every scrap of ancient testimony be taken account of, and each letter must be minutely examined for every ray of light it can throw upon its writer and its purpose. The testimony the letter bears to its own authorship and purpose is called internal evidence the testimony borne by ancient writers is called external evidence or tradition hebrews not by paul if we examine the fourteen letters which have borne the name of paul from these two points of view it is at once clear that hebrews is much less entitled to be called a letter of his than are the other thirteen it is anonymous and so the internal evidence is wanting at the most important point moreover when closely examined hebrews shows differences from the remaining letters so marked in language style and ideas that most scholars hold that it cannot have been the work of paul nor is the voice of tradition by any means unanimous Tertullian thought it was the work of Barnabas, and did not regard it as scripture, and although Hebrews is first reflected in Roman writings, the Christian writers of Rome and the West did not accept it as Paul's until the middle of the fourth century. In fact, the assignment of Hebrews to Paul can be definitely traced back to one man, for the first writer to state it is Clement of Alexandria, and he says that he learned it from the Blessed Presbyter, which is his way of referring to his teacher, Pentinus. The Pastoral Letters 
if we apply these same instruments of inquiry to the other letters bearing the names of paul the letters of timothy and titus at once stand out as a distinct group from the point of view of both internal testimony and tradition these pastoral epistles as they are called definitely claim paul as their author and to this extent satisfy the requirement of internal evidence but when examined more narrowly they disclose a style and interest and a type of thought very different from that of paul as we know him through his leading letters and the historical situations that gleam through them are clearly later than the life of paul the suspicion of the pastoral letters suggested by their own indirect internal testimony is confirmed by a study of tradition about them the earliest list of paul's letters of which we know definitely that of marcion of pontus made about 140 to 150 a d does not include them but they were accepted by irenaeus about 180 to 185 a d as written by paul and as parts of christian scripture but we may not immediately conclude that these three letters have no connection with paul but were wholly composed under his name at a later time we must consider the possibility that short genuine letters of his to timothy and titus were expanded into these letters as we know them in order to claim the authority of paul for much-needed regulations as to church organization and management this possibility cannot be denied but as a matter of fact all attempts to determine what genuinely pauline parts are preserved in these letters have proved unconvincing moreover the letters which fit so poorly into what we know of paul's life and work and thought are readily understood if set in the early years of the second century when just the questions with which they deal were as other documents show deeply concerning the churches in that age too men did not scruple to write letters revelations even gospels in the name of other apostles for example peter and while it would have been difficult to put into circulation a letter purporting to be from paul to a well-known and still active church it would have been easy to put forth such letters addressed to individuals long dead colossians and ephesians the remaining ten letters stood in the earliest list of paul's writings of which we have definite knowledge the canon of marcion the evidence of tradition for these ten is therefore much stronger than for the three just discussed but considerations of internal evidence that is the testimony of the letters themselves make it necessary to scrutinize the authenticity of some of these letters very closely colossians and ephesians when compared prove to resemble each other in so many details of expression and to present a phase of thought so different from anything in paul's major letters as to throw serious doubt upon their authenticity some authors explain this as due to the fact that when paul wrote colossians the practical and doctrinal errors that had appeared at colossi had given his mind a new direction and that he wrote at the same time a general letter ephesians to the neighboring churches in which he dealt with the same general situation in much the same terms others have held that colossians is indeed a work of paul but that ephesians is from the hand of a later follower of his who made colossians the basis for his work others seek to solve the problem by the theory that an original letter to the colossians now lost was expanded into the two epistles that we have the relation of ephesians and colossians and the genuineness of these letters form one of the present problems of the pauline literature 
Ephesians presents a further problem in the matter of its original destination. To whom was it written? Paul can hardly have sent it to the Ephesians, for it is wholly without personal touches, and some things in it suggest that it was addressed to people who did not know Paul personally, but only by reputation. Chapter 3, verse 2. In Marcion's list, it went by the name of Laodiceans, and the oldest manuscripts, while they give its title as to Ephesians, omit the words in Ephesus from the first verse. The historical student has to inquire whether Ephesians is a circular letter sent to Ephesus, among other places, or is the letter from Laodicea mentioned in Colossians, chapter 4, verse 16 and in this latter case how it came to be called to ephesians the writer of the revelation chapter three verse sixteen marcion and basil of caesarea throw some light upon this question second thessalonians one other letter which has come down to us under the name of paul calls for careful investigation in the matter of its authenticity Second Thessalonians resembles First Thessalonians very much as Ephesians does Colossians. In general outline and in many details of expression, the two letters to Thessalonica agree. How did a writer so original and fertile-minded as Paul come to repeat himself in this way? Did he have a letter book? and before writing Second Thessalonians, refer to a copy of First Thessalonians, which he had retained? Or did he write the two letters at the same time, sending one to the Greek and the other to the Jewish Christian body at Thessalonica? To these psychological doubts about Second Thessalonians is added an eschatological one. The Lord's Day, it is alleged, is described in the first letter as coming without warning, as a thief in the night. But in the second, a series of premonitory events is predicted. These difficulties must be fairly dealt with before Second Thessalonians can be confidently accepted as a letter of Paul's. The Seven Undisputed Letters Of the fourteen letters assigned by tradition to Paul, there remain seven with reference to which internal evidence and tradition may fairly be said to agree. These are First Thessalonians, Galatians, First and Second Corinthians, Romans, Philippians, and Philemon. They were probably all written between 50 and 63 A.D. and in the order named above. Their date and order must, of course, be determined if their place in Paul's work and life is to be understood, and in this and other matters each presents its own special problems. Galatians In respect to Galatians, its destination is a problem of some interest, both for its own sake and in connection with the time of its writing. For if the Galatia of which Paul spoke was the Phrygian and Lycaonian region of the province of Galatia, and not ethnographical Galatia in north-central Asia Minor, Paul's visit to it and the subsequent composition of the letter fall earlier in his career than most students of the letter have supposed. Composite Letters, Romans, Second Corinthians, and Philippians a different type of problem is presented by Romans, Second Corinthians, and Philippians. It is that of integrity. Are these letters units, or is each of them made up of two or even three letters combined? At the end of Romans stands a chapter of salutations in which Paul shows a wide acquaintance, not only with the personnel of the house congregations at Rome, which he had never visited, but even with the domestic groupings of these individuals. This and other considerations 
make it probable that the sixteenth chapter of romans was originally a letter to ephesus which was appended to romans when the first considerable collection of paul's letters was made very likely at ephesus before the end of the first century the striking contrast between the two parts of second corinthians raises a similar problem the opening chapters say much of comfort and reconciliation the closing chapters ten through thirteen are a vehement invective against paul's critics at corinth it is difficult to explain this except on the theory that the closing chapters are from the painful letter of rebuke and correction mentioned in second corinthians chapter two verse four and chapter seven verse eight which has usually been regarded as lost if this be true we possess three of the four letters paul is known to have written to corinth the second fourth and third the case for the analysis of second corinthians is stronger than that for the analysis of romans in this respect that the new letter disclosed by the analysis is one of which we have long known from statements in second corinthians itself the letter to the philippians is another exception to the usual orderliness of paul's letters its course of thought is unsystematic and irregular the violent break at chapter three verse two presents great difficulty to all students of the letter now paul must have written to philippi at least five times for we know from his own statements that the philippians had sent him money or supplies on four occasions and the return of epaphroditus to philippi evidently called forth a letter from paul is our philippians this last letter only or are two or even three of paul's five letters to the philippians united in our letter the probability that the latter is the case may be easily tested by reading philippians chapter three verse two through chapter four verse twenty as a letter written to acknowledge the philippians present sent through epaphroditus paul's fourth letter to philippi and chapter one verse one through chapter three verse one chapter four verse twenty one through twenty three as paul's fifth letter to the philippians sent by epaphroditus when he returned to philippi after his illness at rome those who find three letters in our philippians divide chapter three verse two through chapter four verse nine from chapter four verse ten through chapter four verse twenty making this last the final letter and placing chapter three verse two through chapter four verse nine earlier in the correspondence while the analysis of philippians is less convincing than is that of romans and second corinthians it deserves serious consideration especially in view of the fact that polycarp early in the second century speaks of paul's letters to the philippians and advises the philippians to consult them the editing of the pauline letters the question of the editorial work in the pauline letters is involved with that of the earliest collection of them and that properly belongs to the history of the canon it is enough here to say that many things point to ephesus as the place of the making of that collection and the time was probably well within the first century the combining of two or three letters into a single one was very probably a part of the editorial work incident to this larger task of putting in circulation a collection of paul's letters for christian use the specific occasion of the pauline letters but it ought not to be inferred from the foregoing list of doubts and questions concerning the pauline authorship or the integrity of the several letters ascribed to paul in the new testament that these are the only questions or the most important ones with which we have to deal in this part of our subject in fact they are all preliminary 
to discovering under what circumstances and to meet what situation each of these letters or their several component letters were produced it is the answer to this question largely to be discovered from the internal evidence of the letter itself or from this combined with the evidence of other letters and the book of acts that will enable us to set each writing in its proper place in the history and so help us to understand its purpose and its course of thought to decide that a letter ascribed to paul is made up of two or more letters of his or is not his at all is not to deprive it of interest or value for us but only requires that we date it and place it where it really belongs to do this may increase both its interest and its value to decide or even to discuss at length the date place and occasion of each of the letters named above would require more space than can be given in this book but it is a very important part of the task of the student of the new testament in undertaking it he must make the fullest possible use of the evidence afforded by the books themselves of ancient external evidence and of the results of modern study to the more thorough study of the books of the new testament from this point of view we owe no small part of the progress of the last century in the understanding of their thought and of the origin of christianity the earliest gospels the letters of paul were written to serve special immediate needs of individuals churches or groups of churches they were not intended as permanent contributions to literature the earliest christians had no thought of producing a religious literature they were wholly concerned with an inward spiritual experience and the expectation of the early return of jesus to the earth to usher in the messianic era they were loyal to what the spirit of jesus said to their hearts and to what jesus in his earthly ministry had taught this last along with some brief account of jesus's ministry and doings christians learned from the oral instruction of the missionaries through whom they had been converted this was the way in which the corinthians for example learned of the lord's supper and the resurrection paul and every successful missionary taught his converts the traditions as paul calls them first corinthians chapter eleven verses two and twenty three and chapter fifteen verse three in this way some short compend of the words and deeds of jesus was known among the churches and there was at first no thought of writing an account of his teaching or ministry much less his life the synoptic gospels of the score of gospels which were written by two hundred a d the four gospels which are included in the new testament contain probably the most valuable and trustworthy material three of these four resemble one another so strikingly in chronology order of events and details of expression that students have long been accustomed to group them together under the name synoptic gospels their resemblances are so close as to prove that these gospels are dependent on one another or on some common documentary source along with these resemblances they exhibit certain striking differences which greatly complicate the problem of their relationship it is this combination of agreement and difference that gives rise to what is called the synoptic problem the minute comparison of the gospels of matthew mark and luke section by section and even phrase by phrase clearly shows that the writers of matthew and luke had the gospel of mark and made large use of it in producing their gospels this is especially true of matthew into which fifteen sixteenths of the verses of mark have been taken over the question arises 
whether mark was known to these evangelists in the form in which we have it or in some more primitive form the so-called original mark it is reasonably clear that when the writer of matthew used mark it had not lost its original conclusion but that in other respects it was known to him in substantially the form in which it is known to us origin of mark tradition explains the origin of the gospel of mark as due to the effort of mark to preserve for the roman church and other churches peter's recollections of the ministry and words of jesus as mark had learned them in his capacity of interpreter to peter in peter's latter days the idea that peter was the authority for a gospel record was familiar in the first half of the second century as papius justin and the second peter chapter one verse fifteen indicate it seems probable therefore that mark was written soon after the death of peter which occurred in sixty four a d if we examine the gospel of mark with reference to the probability of such an origin it proves to exhibit such an emphasis upon the fall of jerusalem as we should expect in the years of the jewish war sixty six to seventy a d and its generally primitive character and freedom from editorial retouching make it very likely that it was composed during the jewish war much in the way papias describes there is little question that mark's collection of peter's recollections is embodied in our mark the chief critical question is whether the two documents are identical or the recollections only served as one source toward the composition of our mark but the fact that our mark is so completely taken over into matthew is opposed to this latter alternative and certain obscurities and ambiguities in mark's narrative confirm the impression that it is not the work of an editorial reviser there is indeed little to set against the testimony of tradition that mark wrote this earliest of gospels the traditional account of its purpose too fits very well with the character of the work while the writer believes jesus to be the messiah he does not put that statement into the mouth of jesus but reports him as designating himself the son of man the writer seems more concerned to reproduce faithfully the materials at his disposal than to establish a theological interpretation of jesus his narrative while it makes high claims for jesus includes many homely touches which later evangelists preferred to leave out it is in short an informal and unambitious narrative with no strongly defined apologetic purpose such as the gospels of matthew and john so clearly show two document theory synoptic study has shown that matthew and luke are based upon mark but the more difficult part of the synoptic problem remains how shall we explain the occurrence in matthew and luke of common material not derivable from mark the obvious answer is both derived it from a second source possessed by both this second common source was for a long time identified with the logia or sayings of jesus composed according to the testimony of papias by the apostle matthew in the aramaic language but the fact that the document is described as existing in aramaic while the resemblances it would have to explain are often in the details of greek expression and the further fact that it is said to have consisted of sayings while the resemblances which the theory requires it to explain are often in narrative have led most synoptic scholars in recent years to give up the effort to identify the second source of matthew and luke with the logia of matthew 
the two-document theory as it is called suffers decidedly when its second document ceases to be identified with the logia and becomes a mere critical conjecture and the question arises why is it necessary to explain the non-markan resemblances of matthew and luke by one conjectural document instead of more the answer is at once made because it is reasonable to postulate no more conjectural documents than are required to account for the facts but the theory necessitates assigning to one document material of widely different types and interests and it is a somewhat striking fact that the non-markan material shared by matthew and luke while scattered all through matthew is in luke for the most part confined to two considerable sections these sections are further remarkable for the almost total absence from them of any markan material and they have long been spoken of by students of luke as the small and the great interpolations because they may be viewed as bodies of material interpolated by luke in the text of mark which he was clearly making the basis of his gospel these sections luke chapter six verse twenty through chapter eight verse three and chapter nine verse fifty one through chapter eighteen verse fourteen may very probably have been documents which luke characteristically inserted en bloc while matthew with his analytical and topical way of working took from them what he wished to use and place it where he saw fit to the former of these source sections should probably be assigned also luke chapter three verses seven through fifteen verse seventeen verse eighteen chapter four verse two b through verse thirty chapter five verse one through eleven and to the latter chapter nineteen verses one through twenty eight three document theory this would explain the resemblances of matthew and luke by a three document theory that is by the use of both of three documents mark and the two just outlined the writers of matthew and luke had each of them in addition to these special sources perhaps documentary each had his own peculiar source for his account of the infancy of jesus and it is not improbable that the writer of matthew may have had the sayings of matthew and so the name of that apostle came to be connected with that gospel authorship of matthew and luke this introduces the question of the authorship of these gospels of the author of the gospel of matthew nothing is definitely known the statements of ancient writers are probably due to the incorporation into our matthew of the sayings of matthew above referred to the gospel itself is anonymous and gives no definite evidence as to its writer if it were the work of an apostle or any other eyewitness it is very difficult to understand its dependence upon mark its earliest name seems to have been simply the gospel and it is possible that it was the first work of christian literature to go by this name the gospel of luke on the other hand while it nowhere mentions its author by name is not quite anonymous since the individual to whom it was addressed or dedicated would naturally have known who was addressing him in the preface nor is there in this case any reason to doubt that such an author as paul's friend luke might very naturally have used written sources and oral tradition in making up his narrative there is in short much more to be said for the lucan authorship of the gospel of luke than for the assignment of apostolic authorship to matthew the difficulties with it will be pointed out in connection with its sequel the acts 
we have seen that the gospel of mark was written in the effort to preserve the recollections of peter for the edification and instruction of the churches what occasioned the writing of matthew a close examination of it suggests that a variety of motives actuated the writer he was in part anxious to explain to his christian brethren the continuity of the christian movement within judaism upon which the recent fall of jerusalem had thrown what he considered new and important light he wished also to harmonize and unify the various writings on the ministry and teaching of jesus which were so likely to confuse the ordinary man probably mark had shown how helpful in the life of the churches even so moderate and limited a gospel could be some light is thrown upon the place of origin of matthew by the fact that it is first clearly reflected in the letters of ignatius of antioch early in the second century and that the kind of circle mainly jewish christian for which it was evidently intended would be most likely to be found there in the years just following the fall of jerusalem to that place and period it is probable the gospel of matthew is to be referred the acts closely related to the gospel of luke and so to the synoptic problem is the book of acts written by the same author and presumably upon principles and methods similar to those which governed the writing of luke's gospel the problem of acts relates to its authorship and trustworthiness all agree that luke and acts are from the same hand and further that the writer of the we sections acts chapter sixteen verses ten through eighteen chapter twenty verses five through sixteen chapter twenty one verses one through eighteen and chapter twenty seven verse one through chapter twenty eight verse sixteen was a companion of paul and an eye-witness of what he reports in the first person but was the we diarist luke much more important was he the author of the whole book of acts furthermore how near was he in writing to the events which he records had he read the antiquities of josephus published in the thirteenth year of domitian ninety three through ninety four a d and what was the character and worth of the sources used by the christian historian in the earlier part of his work all these matters are of essential importance to the interpretation of acts and the reconstruction of early christian history on the whole there is not sufficient evidence to make it probable that the writer of luke acts used josephus's work and it seems reasonable to conclude that the we diarist is identical with the author who speaks in the first person in acts chapter one verse one and in luke chapter one verse three the reign of domitian introduced the christian movement to a new situation the increased emphasis upon emperor worship which marked that reign involved christians in different parts of the empire in suspicion condemnation and persecution this situation is the background of three books of the new testament revelation the revelation is the work of john a christian prophet of asia who was imprisoned for his christian profession and while in prison wrote a series of letters and visions to fortify his brethren in the asian churches against the temptation to apostatize as early as the time of justin circa 150 a d this john was identified with the apostle john but there is nothing in the revelation to suggest this yet it was probably this idea that afterward kept the revelation of john in the new testament of the western church when the other apocalypses were dropped from christian scripture a more serious problem in the study of the revelation is that of its dependence upon earlier apocalyptic writings 
that its general form was suggested by jewish apocalyptic works such as daniel and enoch goes without saying but there are certain parts of it which seem to reflect an earlier time than domitian's and it is at least possible that the book as we know it is based upon an earlier apocalypse perhaps of the period of the jewish war hebrews another work of domitian's time is the so-called epistle to the hebrews the anonymity of this letter has occasioned much futile conjecture as to the identity of its author beginning with the unfortunate guess of pentinus that it was from the hand of paul it is more important to ascertain to whom it was written and for what purpose its strongly jewish color and the name by which it has so long been known have led many scholars to the view that it was written for jewish christians in palestine and designed to deter them from lapsing into judaism over against this stands the fact that such a body could hardly be addressed in greek and that the description the writer gives of the church to which he is writing is quite inappropriate to the jerusalem church or any palestinian church of which we know while the judaism of which the writer speaks is always that of the wilderness and the tabernacle never that of jerusalem and the temple on the other hand the picture given of the church addressed with its virtues and faults and its peculiar history fits remarkably well upon the roman church in the time of domitian and the salutations of those from italy chapter thirteen verse twenty four point in the same direction the problem is a difficult one but it is decidedly probable that the letter was addressed to roman christians whom the persecution of domitian exposed to the danger of discouragement and apostasy first peter a third document from domitian's persecution may serve to bind these two together first peter in its opening words claims to be the work of the apostle peter but the situation it reflects can hardly be earlier than the time of domitian for the followers of christ are being persecuted for the name of christ and as christians chapter four verses fourteen and sixteen the letter is written from rome which is spoken of as babylon as in the revelation and is addressed to the christians of the provinces of asia minor who are undergoing persecution but why was it given the name of peter it may have been the work of a roman presbyter of that name chapter five verse one who was afterward identified with the apostle peter as the john of the revelation was later identified with the apostle or the explanation may lie in the fact that a variety of works were put forth early in the second century under the name of peter and were widely accepted as genuine gospel of john the johannine problem in its larger aspects includes the authorship of all the five writings ascribed by christian tradition to the apostle john the main interest of it centers about the gospel of john which while anonymous in a later epilogue chapter twenty one distinctly claims the apostle john as its voucher when compared with the synoptic representation however the johannine is found to differ in certain vital respects the jesus of the synoptists reticent about himself and his office gives way to a divine christ promptly and boldly asserting his pre-existence and messiahship the synoptic order of narrative disrupted at many points is sometimes even inverted the boldly apocalyptic eschatological teaching of jesus reported by the synoptists gives way to a spiritualized eschatology and the jewish forms of thought in which the synoptists cast their message 
are replaced by more hellenized and universal ones it is evidently true that if the author of this gospel was a personal follower of jesus still more if he was his confidential disciple the fourth gospel has substantial claims to be considered the authoritative formulation of jesus's thought and teaching but apostolic authorship is not the most vital point of the johannine problem the point is rather the historical truth of the picture of jesus and his teaching which it contains is this or is the synoptic representation the true one are both true the synoptic presenting the public external aspect of jesus's life and teaching the johannine the intimate esoteric explanation of himself which he made to his disciples or is the fourth gospel the end of the century reinterpretation of jesus in the more universal terms of greek thinking in accord with the wider horizons and new streams of thought which the success of the gentile mission had brought with it and colored with the hellenic thought of its time somewhat as the synoptic gospels are colored with the jewish ideas of theirs but if this be the solution of the johannine problem it leaves some elements still to be explained what is the historical value of the specific narratives it preserves what genuine elements of jesus's teaching wanting in the synoptists has it preserved how far does its chronology of jesus's ministry soundly correct that of the synoptists is its spiritualization of synoptic eschatology a bold effort to assimilate apocalyptic crudities to greek thinking on the part of a writer who had undertaken to transplant christianity from jewish soil to greek or a real sounding of the profound thought of jesus first second and third john of the three johannine letters the first is so like the gospel of john in tone and ideas that it might almost be a stray leaf from it and seems clearly to have come from the same hand with it the second and third are more evidently letters one to a church the other to a certain gaius from one who calls himself the elder and deals with a dispute over views and authority which has the ring of the early second century they may well be from the hand which wrote the gospel and first john and suggest that the elder may be that elder john of whom papias speaks this has led some to the conclusion that the gospel of john embodies traditional materials from the apostle john recast and reinterpreted by john the elder in both gospel and letters is reflected the docetic controversy of the beginning of the second century later epistles james there remain three so-called epistles bearing the names of james peter and jude the first of these is quite clearly a christian sermon later published among the churches under the name of james who afterward came to be identified with james of jerusalem the brother of jesus it is an interesting example of early christian preaching but it is not possible to determine who the james whose name it bears was jude and second peter the epistle of jude is directed against the docetic thinkers who made of jesus so fantastic and unreal a figure its author is represented to have been a brother of james and so of jesus the letter is a vehement denunciation of the docetists and shows a canonical regard for jewish works like the assumption of moses and the book of enoch 
the substance of this little document is closely paralleled in second peter and the question arises how this is to be explained is jude a condensation of second peter or is second peter an expansion of jude or are both based upon some other document second peter is directed against certain persons who were denying the second coming of christ and it seems most probable that the writer simply appropriated to this purpose the denunciation which in jude is directed at the docetists second peter is remarkable in the number of new testament books known to its writer he speaks of a collection of paul's letters alludes to first peter and the gospel of mark quotes the gospels of matthew and of john and reproduces most of the contents of jude second peter is therefore in all probability the latest of the new testament books but its writer fully intends to be understood as the work of peter and seeks to identify himself in a variety of ways with the apostle that such a course was not unusual in the christian literature of the second century has already been pointed out and intelligent christian opinion in antiquity came very slowly and reluctantly to the acceptance of second peter as apostolic End of chapter 4, part 2